copy of God's Word to James chapter 5. James chapter 5 and about verse 16. Confess your trespasses one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Of all the writers of the New Testament, none sound more like Jesus Christ than James. That makes a lot of sense when we consider the fact that James is likely the half-brother of Jesus through Mary. Think about that. Here is a person who didn't believe in Jesus during his earthly ministry. John 7, 1 through 5. Here's a person who, due to the resurrection of Jesus, would end up becoming a pillar in the early church. He appeared to James, 1 Corinthians 15. James eventually would become a pillar in the early church, Galatians 2, 9 through 11. No writer of the New Testament sounds more like Jesus than James. And at no point in the book of James is that more obvious than James chapter 5. When you get to James chapter 5, catch this. James 5, 1 through 6. James deals with wealth. Does that sound like a subject Jesus dealt with quite a bit? Wealth. Wisdom and wealth. James 5, 1 through 6. Then look at James 5, 7 through about verse 12. James 5, 7 through 12. He deals with wisdom and patience. Does that sound like another common theme of Jesus? Patience? Wealth and patience. Then look at verses 13 through 20 of James chapter 5. James especially deals with the matter of prayer, wisdom and prayer. Again, all three subjects are subjects that Jesus had a lot to say about. And so does James. James is all about Christian maturity. James is about growing up in the faith. He's about commitment. He's about character and integrity as the people of God. And friends, I want you to know Christianity is always a character issue. It's always a matter of integrity. Sometimes we get more concerned about our reputations than we are about our character. God is more concerned about our integrity than our reputation. Mature Christians think more like that. Now when you look at James and its five chapters, 
Let me give you a quick principle from each of the five. Then I want to focus on six people specifically named in the book. And then I'm going to race through James 5 with you. Fair enough? So here's what we're going to do first. One principle for becoming more mature from each of the five chapters. Chapter 1. Mature, wise Christians are patient during trials and temptations. Immature Christians are impatient during trial and temptation. That's James 1. James 2. Mature Christians consistently practice the truth. That's the chapter on faith and works, James 2, 14 through 26. It's the chapter on treating people the way they ought to be treated because God values them, James 2, 1 through 13. Mature Christians consistently practice the truth. Immature people are inconsistent in their practices. James chapter 3. Mature people, wise Christians, have power over their tongue and they seek heavenly wisdom. They have power over their tongue and they seek heavenly wisdom. That's especially James 3, 1 through 12 on the tongue and the wisdom that's from above, James 3, 13 through 18. Mature, wise Christians... James chapter 4, are peacemakers and not troublemakers. Some people just love to be disagreeable. Some people are just as drawn to controversy as a moth is to a flame. And Paul warned against this type of disposition in 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 5. Troublemakers... People that are immature and unwise are people that often cause trouble and division. James chapter 5. People that are mature and wise as Christians are prayerful in trouble. They're prayerful in trouble. They appreciate the value of prayer. And people that are immature, that are unwise, tend to not pray so much as they are talking to others during a time of trouble. Now that doesn't mean we can't talk to others during a time of trouble, but surely we ought to talk to God more than we talk to human beings during a time of trouble. Wouldn't you agree? As people who are Christians are growing all right there's one principle from each of the five chapters now notice this four Old Testament characters are specifically named in James Two New Testament here are the four Old Testament characters they are found in James chapter 2 and in James chapter 5 first Old Testament character Abraham 
James 2, 21 through 24. Abraham. What Abraham teaches us is that faith has a cost. And by and large, when we look at the life of Abraham, we see a man willing to pay the price for his faith. He really trusts God, and so he leaves Ur of the Chaldees. He's later on willing to wait for a son when he's well past childbearing years, and then God tells him to take that son. Here is, and, and kill him, here is a man who understands something about the costliness of faith. And yet he trusts God and is known as God's friend. Because I trust God, I want to be known as God's friend. Don't you? Rahab. It's as if in the mind of James, he's thinking, who would be about as far removed from the father of the nation and the great pillar of faith that Abraham was? Who would be as far removed as they could possibly be? So he goes to a woman. He goes to a Canaanite. And Rahab illustrates the courage of faith. The courage of faith. And when you stop and think about Rahab, she probably said something to those spies that they really needed to hear. We have heard about your God and how God gave you victory over your enemies. And we understand that we're next. Imagine hearing... A Canaanite tell you such a story. You think that it encouraged them? Sometimes we find encouragement where we least expect it. And here was a woman who courageously put her life on the line to shelter, to hide the spies. And here's what's interesting. She's in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. But what you might not have known is that she was an ancestor of Boaz in the book of Ruth. And that Ruth, Boaz, Boaz had Rahab as either his mother, his grandmother, or his great-grandmother. We don't know for sure which, but think about that. And how God works things and His tremendous providence. James chapter 5. In James chapter 5, look at verse 11. Job, the patience of faith. The patience of faith. There are times we don't know why. But God is worthy of our trust even when we don't know why things are as they are. Mature people, 
wise people see that. And then in James 5 and verse 17, 16 and 17, Elijah, the passion of faith. He's a man of similar passions to us. And he could pray and he believed so much in the God to whom he prayed that when he prayed that the, that the clouds of heaven be closed as far as rain is concerned, it didn't rain for years. And when he prayed that it rain, it rained. I believe we need a couple of Elijah type people today, don't you right now? That passionately believe in the power of prayer. They're passionate about God and the things of God, but they're passionate about prayer. Now we're to the two New Testament people. Look at James. James 1 verse 1. James has a humble view of himself. Oh, what we can learn from James. He is a servant, a bond servant, a willing servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't say, I am a pillar in the early church and the Lord's half-brother. He's not dropping names. Kind of interesting how some preachers are particularly good about that, but James wasn't. Who you know and where you've been and what you've done. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Number next. He's laughing at that. You may, you may have heard that from a preacher or two. All right, number two. Look at this with James. He had a humble view of himself, but he had a high and lofty view of God. Servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He has no hesitation at all linking Jesus with God. He's the Lord. He's Jesus, our Savior. That's what Jesus means. Christ, the anointed one, the king. A high view of God. But then next, James 1. And looking at the passage, he has... A loving view of God's people. The 12 tribes that are scattered, dispersed. Like James, we ought to have a humble view of self, a high and lofty view of God, and a loving view of his people. You see, Christians at the time James is writing, they are people without a country. Jews hate those from a Jewish background that have become Christians. They view them as traitors to the faith. And Rome is persecuting Christians, or at least beginning to, at the writing of the book of James. You may be dispersed and scattered throughout the area. But God knows every single one of you that belong to Him. 2 Timothy 2.19 And you know, really, it's not much different today. Christians are scattered throughout the world, are they not? Do we have a loving view 
of the people of God wherever they may be. The last person mentioned by name is Jesus. Look at James 2.1. Brethren, do not hold the faith of Jesus, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. The expression brethren is found 19 times in the book of James. James really is a book for the people of God, the church. But what he says about Jesus, do not hold the faith. The faith, he's the source of the faith. And the faith is about him and what he has accomplished. And what he is saying is, when we are guilty of prejudice, prejudging others based on their appearance or their background or academic standing or or their ancestry, whatever, what we are doing flies against the source and the subject of our salvation. He came to die for sinners regardless of the color of their skin or their academic background or their uh, socio-historical background. He came to die for sinners. And the church should be known as a group of people that love, that love sinners. Now to James 5. As we look at James 5, 1 through 6, what's it about? Wisdom and wealth. Commitment and wealth. Wholehearted service to God and wealth. Let's look at three passages from Jesus before we dive into this. Passage number 1, Matthew 19, 16 through 22. It is the story of the rich young ruler. It begins so hopeful, so great. He's rich, he's young, he's a ruler. Many churches would have immediately made the guy a deacon just because he shows the uh, the interest that he shows. He's the right kind of guy. He's the kind of guy you want to have. You understand how the conversation with Jesus goes. Jesus tells him to go and sell all that he has and come and follow him. And the rich young ruler went away sorrowfully because he had great wealth. And Jesus would say that it is as hard for a rich man to enter heaven as it is for a camel to pass through the eye of the needle. Isn't that what Jesus said? And then he said this, but with God all things are possible. While it may be hard to go to heaven if we have considerable wealth, it's not impossible. And God has used people like Abraham and others through the years who were quite well to do. Second passage, Luke 16, 19 through 31. I really believe Luke 16, 19 through 31 
Lazarus and the rich man, forms the perfect backdrop to the events being described in James 5, 1 through 6. There are rich people who are abusing their riches and are completely thoughtless about the poor. Remember how Lazarus and the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, 19 through 31 would have eaten the crumbs off of the rich man's table. It sounds a lot like what's being described in James 5. 1 through 6. Third passage from Jesus again. Matthew 6, 19 through 24. Matthew 6, 19 through 24. No man can serve two masters. Where is your treasure? Uh, what kind of vision do you have? You see, when you look at Matthew 6, 19 through 24, the words of Jesus, it's as if they are ringing in the ears of James still as he pins these words to the early church. Wealth says something about our perspective of treasure, heavenly or earthly. Wealth says something about our vision and insight or our lack of it. And wealth says something about our master and no man can serve two of them. You see, wealth can be a very useful servant, but it's a mighty poor master. As a final passage to consider, let's consider this one from Paul. 1 Timothy 6.10 The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. One of the early problems in the church, love of money. Acts 5, 1-11 The thing is, our perspective of earthly wealth will cause our perspective of treasure in heaven to diminish. The more we value the earthly, the less we will value the heavenly. Not rich toward God. Luke 12, 21, the rich man God called a fool. Let's proceed. In James 5, 1 through 6, he deals with wisdom and wealth. And you look at this. He brings charges against wealthy people. The charges are found in verses 1 through 3. And he says, weep and howl. If you've got that expression, howl, or the equivalent in your translation, circle it. It's not found another time in the New Testament, but it's found 21 times in the Old Testament. And all 21 times, it has to do with the judgment of God coming down. So what you've got here, Brother Lynn, is James sounding an awful lot like an Old Testament prophet. As he cries out against those who abuse their, their wealth and they exploit the poor... They've forgotten the golden rule, do unto others as you would have others do to you. Matthew 7, 12. Notice the charges. 
In verse 2, your riches, which you so emphasize, won't last. Look at verse 3. Your riches corrode and consume you. Look again at the passage. Verse 3, you have treasured earthly wealth more than a heavenly treasure. Those are the charges. Now here's a question to deal with. And a lot of people study James and never try to think about this one. Never occurs to them to. Who are these people? Who are these people? And the reason I ask this question, who are these rich people? Maybe. Are they wealthy non-Christians who are making life hard for the Christians? You know, back in that part of the world and at this point in time, there's really no middle class, Steve. You're either a have or a have-not person. And if you're one of the haves and not a Christian, you can make life very difficult for people who are. There seems to be a considerable amount of evidence that these people were non-Christians. But I'm not going to disagree with somebody who says they might have been Christians. You know why? Are there Christians who abuse their wealth to mistreat and exploit Christians today? Adam, you're a basketball fan, Kansas Jayhawk. I know all that. Think of the scores being 52 to 49. I'd say 52 to 49 may be non-Christians. But it could go either way. It's really close when you evaluate. It could be Christians. But it could also be non-Christians. The text isn't clear enough. But it could apply either way quite well. Here's something else to consider from James 5 and wisdom and wealth, the evidence that they're guilty, verses 4 through 6. Here's the evidence. Just like a trial, the charges, here's the evidence. You are guilty of fraud. You have withheld from those who worked for you. That's verse 4. Money talks. Notice what he says in verse 5. You are people who have lived in the lap of luxury and self-indulgence. And then verse 6. You have condemned and killed the righteous one. You've condemned and killed the righteous one. And the likelihood is strong that this means that these rich individuals, whether they're Christians or not, had used the judicial system, the courts of the time, to throw their weight around. And as a result, they had made life even harder for the poor and those that were exploited. Doesn't that sound pretty much what the scribes and the Pharisees did to Jesus? You see, initially, what was the charge that they really felt Jesus was guilty of as the scribes and Pharisees? 
Blasphemy, isn't that right? But when they get to Rome, they use the Roman judicial system to achieve their end game. And they change the charge to an enemy of the state in treason. And so they got Rome to do their dirty work for them. You reckon the same thing is possible today? The verdict is seen in verse 5. You have fattened, you have gorged yourself as in a day of slaughter. And James says judgment's coming. You have abused your wealth when you could have been considerate of the poor. A real message of Jesus and a great part of what the book of James is all about. Now secondly, let's look at 7 through 12. Wisdom and patience. In track and field, there's the 400 meters. The 400 meters is generally considered one of the hardest races because it is a sprint from beginning to end. A sprint. You know, other races, if you're a marathoner, you, you, at that 26.2 miles, you, you realize you'll need a kick at the end, but you don't begin that 26.2 miles full speed. The 400 meters... You run full speed. And you're just knowing that at the 401st meter mark, there's going to be somebody there to help you. Life is not always to be led at full speed. Christianity is closer to a marathon than it is a sprint. But sometimes our lives are a lot like the 400 meters. We find ourselves going full blast a lot longer than we would like. In James chapter 5 verse 7, there's the command for patience. There's a command for patience. It is the third reference to patience specifically in the book of James. The first one's found in James 1, 2 through 8 with trial. The second one's found in James 1, 12 through 18 with temptation. Patience during times of trial. Patience during times of temptation. And the word for patience in the New Testament, one word for patience refers to patience with people. Another word for patience has to do with patience with circumstances. Nobody would have a problem with patience if it wasn't for people. And if it wasn't for circumstances. And James says, patience is required with both. Be patient. The coming of the Lord. Then there's examples of patience in verse 7. Farmers. For anybody with a farming background, you can understand Patience is such a needed thing in farming. And then he goes on to mention you yourselves. Those to whom he was writing 
needed to be examples of patience even when they were dealing with difficult people and difficult circumstances. And then he refers to the prophets as examples of patience. Imagine being someone like Jeremiah and preaching for years and years, decades, James, and very few people listen to him. That required a lot of patience. I'm sure James can understand that. That James and this one. And Jeremiah certainly did. And then he mentions Job. Job. The classic example of patience during times of trial and temptation. Patience with people. Patience with circumstances. And it's like James 5.9 is just an extra. It's a P.S. Don't grumble. Don't grumble when you're tempted to complain and be impatient. Then he talks about the incentive for patience. Look at verse 11 and 12. The incentive for patience is this. You'll be blessed if you endure. The incentive for patience is this. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. Be patient. And then there is another P.S. type of statement in verse 12. Just as he says in verse 9, don't grumble. Be patient. You know, there's a tendency when we're not patient to grumble. Then he says, watch your language. Avoid oaths and swearing. Now 13 through 20, quickly. Wisdom and prayer. Is any of you suffering? Let them pray. Suffering and prayer. Pray for those that are suffering and hurting. But I like where he goes next. Is any cheerful or joyful? Let him sing praise. Let him praise God in prayer, in song. The passage continues. Verses 14 and 15. Sickness and prayer. Those who are sick, call the elders. You can call us preachers and we're happy to do what we can, but you know what? It would be probably a lot wiser if the elders were called. When it's really something you're concerned about. And let them pray. Then notice verses 15 and 16. Sin and prayer. Their sin will be forgiven. 
The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much in its working. Confess your sins to one another. One of the most overlooked passages in the New Testament, by the way. We've entered an era where swallowing our pride is about the hardest thing in the world for any of us to do. And sadly, there are some people who have made it a point to gossip and talk and speak too much to too many people who really didn't need to know about something that was going on in the body of Christ. May God help us to be wise enough when someone comes to us and acknowledges wrongdoing, we welcome them and we pray about it, but we do not take that matter outside the congregation as a general rule. We do not. Too many churches air their dirty laundry in the community and on Facebook and other forms of social media, and it does not help the cause of Christ. Stop it. It's immature, it's foolish, and it hurts the cause of Christ. Then in verse 17 and 18, an example of prayer is given in Elijah. He believed in the power of passionate prayer, and so ought the people of God today. And then James closes with verses 19 and 20. Wanderers and prayer. If any wanders away from the truth or goes astray, a stray sheep, and one converts him, brings him back, one has saved a soul from death. Does that sound serious? And covered a multitude of sins. How like Jesus, who came to this earth to reach those who have gone astray and who covered a multitude of sins and saved many of us from eternal death. We need to be just as concerned about encouraging those that have gone astray to come home as we are reaching out to those who have never come to Christ. Blessed are the balanced in this area too. It may be that you know some dear brother or sister that we've not seen for a long time, maybe even for years. God knows them. And maybe you will recognize some of them too. Please be praying for them. That we can encourage them to come back home. The lesson is yours. We're about to stand and sing a song of encouragement. And we do that as a good tradition. So that people who are not right with God can get right with God. Now, I wish, 
I think Adam would agree. I wish that if there was somebody that needed to be right with God, they'd stop me sometimes in the middle of the sermon. I've had it happen a couple of times over the years. And say, Mike, I need to get right with God right now. And you know what? It would make me happy to accommodate that type of request. But we do this as a time that is orderly. And if you've looked at your life and you've realized that you're the one that have wandered and you're the one that's gone astray, it's you that needs to come back tonight. And if you're not in Christ, why aren't you? Because there's cleansing, there's forgiveness, there's a sense of identity, there's a sense of joy, and there's real hope to be found in Him. If you're not in Christ or if you've wandered away from Jesus, won't you come as we stand and sing?